the J Talk podcast. Yes, 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 yes. Hello and welcome to the J Talk podcast. Ben Maxwell and Johnny Nickel with you. And Johnny, the big one on Friday night. It uh, certainly was action-packed, and uh, Kobe ended up proving their championship medal with a 2-0 away win over the defending champions. Yes, Ben, good to be here again. And, uh, yeah, this game is slightly wasted on Friday night rather rather than Saturday, but I think, yeah, still 30,000 there at Nissan Stadium. And, yeah, fascinating stuff. If you're a Marinos fan, you're probably not so happy about it, but... I think there's maybe little doubt that the the best team won on the night, and you know, luckily we, we both were both able to watch it. We've got a, a very good guest along with us to to discuss the game, um, don't we, Ben? Yes, indeed we do. And uh, well, I love a, a good bit of symmetry, Johnny. And it just so happens that our guest uh, Rio Nakagawara was also on after the first meeting between uh, F Marinos and Kobe this season. So it's uh, it's a happy coincidence to have him back after their uh, second clash. And also, uh, yeah, it's great timing because uh, the two teams that we support, Johnny, uh, FC Tokyo and Gumbro Osaka, squared off on Sunday, and uh, Rio's an FC Tokyo supporter like myself. So uh, we're in a pretty buoyant mood, uh, despite my computer problems having us starting late. But uh, Rio, thanks for your patience, and uh, welcome back to the pod. How are you? Uh, hi, Ben. Hi, Johnny. Yeah, it's great to be back. And yeah, I really appreciate uh, getting... Uh, Another appearance on this podcast, like, um, yeah, the symmetry <laughs> with, um, yeah, with the big match between first and second yet again. So, yeah, happy to be here. Yep, terrific stuff. And uh, once again, the uh, honours went to the away team, just as they did at the Novir Stadium back in uh, match day nine. And, uh, well, yeah, we won't literally go kick by kick on this game, gents, but it was uh, clearly the biggest game of the season so far. And, yes, for Kobe supporters, it more than lived up to its billing. For F. Marino's fans, uh, maybe not so much as, uh, yeah, Kevin Muscat was uh, left scratching his head at times, but uh, real, we'll we'll talk about uh, yeah the early exchanges. I guess uh, is a good place to start. And Kobe's pressing almost uh, ran uh, F Marinos into some trouble in the first five or so minutes, but then they settled and there was an early chance for uh, for Ken Matsubara who fired narrowly wide. Yeah, um, I thought Marinos were going a lot like really really vertical, like really really like direct at times. Right. And that was really, as you said, as a result of um, Viso Kobe's press. And it's and like the story of this game really felt a lot like similar to um, how the um, the uh, game earlier in the season played out. Right. Uh, Viso Kobe pressing uh, Marinos's uh, build up. And yeah, like Marinos going really, really direct and. You know, they would go straight up wide from the center back to the fullback and then directly to the winger, right? And then they're kind of trying to score with just their attackers only, just trying to kind of go really, really fast before um, Viso Kobe could uh, come back to defend. But, you know, like Marnos really couldn't finish those chances off, right? Uh, they had really little support from the midfielders as they're too far back uh, to uh, help out the the two wingers and uh, Anderson Lopez up top. Now Nishimura and Lopez will always be trying to drop into different spaces um, around the halfway line to uh, re- receive those uh, long balls from Eduardo or Tsunoda. And then the wingers like Yamateos and Albert will be trying to make runs behind the defense. But the problem was that 
Yamakawa and Honda did really well to prevent uh, Nishimura Lopez from settling on the ball, right? So like those um, kind of runs in behind weren't really uh, activated, so to speak. So about the um, buildup, so like we saw a lot of um, the same kind of patterns in Marnos in the first half. So like Eduardo passing it directly to Nagato, and then the buildup kind of stalled from there. It was a common sight in the first half. And um, this was really because like neither center back could really find uh, Riku Yamane or Kota Watanabe um, since they were so carefully guarded by Osaka and Sasaki. Um, so, you know, they only had the option to go long or spread out wide. But like the problem was like Nagato would receive it when Elbear or Nishimura weren't ready to make a run or weren't open. So like things kind of got stuck from there. So, mm. yeah. What do you think about that, Johnny? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. That's obviously like fantastic detail you've gone into there. You know, I, I think I noticed the kind of overall feeling of like with with um, Postecoglou when he was the manager and with Muscat as his manager, that Marinos always say that we're going to play it our way. And I mean, they obviously respect their opponent, but they do have a style of playing. And I think you know, Bisa Kobe are top of the league for a reason that they're obviously in, in J League terms, they're in a, an elite team. And yes, yeah, it's, it's just sometimes, you know, Mariners haven't been playing that, that well recently. Vissel have been in much better form than them. And Vissel obviously have a plan that is a bit adaptable to how opponents play. And they do focus on, on shutting them down. And I think maybe this game kind of, kind of highlighted, you, you mentioned obviously Anderson Lopez, he's one of the top scorers and that the Vissel defenders did very well in, in handling him. Whereas also like Eduardo, you mentioned his passing. I think he's defending, especially the first 40, 40, up to the first second goal. We're going to talk about he really lost the battle with with Osaka. We we kind of mentioned last week that he does have a mistake in him and he's not always been so convincing at, at Marinos. So I think that was that was maybe a bit of a, an issue as well. And perhaps this game kind of highlighted. I think um, well, well Vissel, you know, they've always been very good. Marinos defensively have been a mid-table side in, in many ways and maybe in chance creation in most games have been a top kind of three four team. And then in, in finishing the chances with Anderson Lopez, they've been elite. Whereas Vissel, despite having injuries like Marinos have had, I think that they've been in elite in all of those areas. And you know, I think that their ability to shine all across the field, I think, was, was perhaps the, the decisive factor maybe overall in this, this game. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, um, yeah, uh, Marinos is defending, I think Osaka and Sasaki were really good, not just in, in terms of kind of like the pressing and defending that we uh, talked about just a bit before. Right. Mm-hmm. But they were so good at like, you know, moving in tandem with each other. Right. So, so you mm-hmm. know, whenever Osaka would drop, Sasaki would then instead be, you know, making those threatening runs in behind the defense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those kind of movements, you know, together, you know, timed really well, um, you know, give that little bit of hesitation for Eduardo or, or Tsunoda to track Osaka. Right. You know, and, they, and that uh, little bit of um, extra few seconds extra extra bit of space allows osako to you know the time to sell the ball or flick it on and like even at worst even if osako doesn't win the ball in those um areas like you had yamaguchi and others come in support to pick up those loose balls mm-hmm. and really like the big big uh thing that uh, separated marinos and kobe in this game was really that viso kobe were much quicker much faster much you know aggressive and being able to pick up those second and loose balls whenever they popped up in the midfield and they were really able to like you know 
keep Marinos under pressure um, because not every time Marinos would clear it, Yamaguchi or Sasaki or anyone would just be picking the ball up and they'll go straight back into you know the Marinos's half and then they'll have to come at, come back and defend again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was so interesting to see kind of like how you know it wasn't just Sasaki but like Muto you know making runs you know pulling opponent defenders around and you know creating those pockets for Osako. Yeah. Yeah, it and, was a, it was terrific, and I, I did mention that early chance for uh, for Matsubara after an elbow shot was blocked, and uh, I know Johnny, we bigged up Anderson Lopez, and obviously rightly so, he was the the co Golden Boot leader coming into this game for always being in the right place at the right time, but I think there was an incident in inside the first ten minutes where I think first Nishimura crossed from the right, and then Elber picked up that loose ball and then fired across the box as well but yeah Anderson Lopez wasn't in his customary position in between the posts so wasn't able to take advantage of either chance and he cut a a very frustrated figure I felt as the uh, as the game wore on and I mean that was just an early indication of uh, he wasn't going to be his night but uh, yeah it was it did seem uh, difficult for F Marinos to to coherently link up their attack in ways that we've become accustomed to so far this season. Yeah, I think I think in the game we're going to come on to talk about next. Uh, what my team's defending was was in stark contrast to what we saw the kind of defensive masterclass from Vissel Kobe as as Rio laid out. I mean, naturally when we talk about defending, you think about the defenders, but you know, as he, as he laid out that right right from the attack uh, back, everyone was closing down and pressing, and and Marinos, especially in, in dangerous areas and in the the Vissel half, had very little t- time on the ball. And yeah, I think. It, at the start of the game, as you mentioned, there's a couple of chances, half chances that Marinos had, had a bit of momentum, but I think that was quite quite quickly lost. And uh, the, the longer the first half went on, the, the more kind of Vissel really ground Marinos down. And perhaps you could see, you know, Marinos haven't been in great form, but they've also had, you know, they had the Asian Champions League the, the previous week. And then before that, they played uh, Kashima and got another Asian Champions League game again. Whereas Vissel, you know, it's not it's not great news to be out of all the competitions and not in the ACL, but facing off against the Marinos side and it's down to the wire for the title, only having five games left this calendar year. It, they have injuries, but the players that they've got can just go out and go for it from the first minute to the last. And, you know, Yoshida, I mean, before this season, he'd be never really my favourite coach, but he really seems to get all the players kind of buying into his, his system. It was, it was quite interesting in this game, there was... I don't know, obvious or not, or deliberate or not. There's quite a stark contrast. I think it was 11 Japanese players starting, and there was five five foreign players on on the bench. So I don't I don't know what the thinking was behind that. Whether it's he has a sort of group of players he feels he can he can trust. I mean that that might be kind of balanced out by I think Ogi Ogiara has been out of the out of the picture for a long time, but he's kind of come back in against two of his former sides, Serizo and, and Yokohama F Marinos, and he's fitted in like like he's never been away. So. Yeah, I think yeah, Yoshida de- uh, definitely deserves a, a lot of credit the way he set up the team for this game. There was no mistakes about the, the kind of you know, the, the pressing and uh, what they did their thing. Um, so yeah, very tough game for both sides. But I think you know the, the early running was was maybe a false dawn for Marinos, and I think yeah, Viso started to really grind them down as, as the first half wore on. Yeah, it was interesting um, seeing Ogihara play because yeah, like as you said, Johnny, he was like completely out of the Vistel Kobe team for such a long time. Like, you know, like his first season, obviously he got injured and he was pretty much out for, um, what was it, the entire 2022 season, I think. And then he just never really, um, there was just ne- n- never a place for him in the team. 
and then now with Saito's injury, it's he's uh, kind of had a you know a second life, so mm-hmm. so to speak. And yeah, this game he was really good. I thought you know um, one of the concerns I had with Ogihara when he first joined Viso Kobe was that you know he's not really a, the type to you know be able to defend large spaces. He's not very quick. He's not very agile. But the uh, way that Kobe play now, they're a lot more compact, right? And they also have lots. Uh, he and Ogihara has lots of help from Yamaguchi and Sasaki, and then also he has the center backs uh, behind him who are you know really aggressive, really active, and coming out and uh, stepping up into the midfield. But you know, like there are still you know danger moments uh, for Ogihara when you know he uh, like players like Namtehi and Yamane were able to like kind of quickly turn past him. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, like really, really um, solid, and he was a big help in um kobe being able to pick up those uh second loose balls because it was interesting to see like uh when kobe were uh defending it was actually ogihara kind of sitting back in uh in front of the defenders and then yamaguchi really pushing up uh closer to sasaki and osako uh to uh you know keep track of uh, ricky yamane and uh kota watanabe and yeah, it really looked like that old diamond midfield that we saw uh, for Kobe back when, you know, Iniesta and Seri Samper were playing. Um, so yeah, sorry, I wanted to go back to that 11th minute um, chance that you were talking about before, uh, Ben and uh, Johnny. Like the reason Anderson Lopez wasn't in the box was that he was like, he was actually like the person who started off the attack in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you check out the... Um, yeah, if you check out the footage, there like it's around eleventh minute, fifty second or something around that, right? Um, yeah, like he's the one that drops really deep and then receives that uh, pass from uh, straight from Ichimori, and then he lays it off, and then that's how um, Marnos are were able to quickly get up the pitch. And with Lopez dropping, then you want someone to you know take up that space that he's left behind. But, you know, as we saw with the cross that went across the goal and then it goes up across the goal again, like there's, yeah, the, the two wingers were on, were out wide and then they passed it across the box twice, but there was no one there. So it's like, well, you know, we, Lopez was dropping and helping to create that chance in the first place. So someone needs to, you know, you know take uh, take the initiative to be in the box. But yeah, mm-hmm. so it's a bit it's a bit of a shame because that move uh was like you know really quintessentially marinos and it was like really well you know crafted move but um yeah like it's 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 a shame that (laughs) there's literally no one in the box to uh get on the end of that um sorry i want to also go back to kind of just marinos's build up in general if you don't mind so we kind of talked or like i kind of talked earlier about you know the build-up kind of stalling with, you know, Eduardo or Tsunoda passing it to the fullbacks, and then, you know, the fullbacks kind of getting stuck. And, like, you know, they couldn't, they didn't really have any options. So one scene I really, really liked that highlighted this problem was in the 13th minute. And so it start it starts off as, um I think it's a goal kick with uh, Ichimori, Um so he passes it wide. Or he passes to Eduardo, and then he passes to Nagato, right? And then Albert makes a run forward, but Sakai uh, Sakai keeps track of him, 
and you know intercepts the through ball. So the problem here is that this is usually how Marinos try to play because they're like they're really good at stretching opponents horizontally and vertically. So what I mean by this is that you know the first quick passes from the goalkeeper uh, or the center back to the fullback, you know that stretches the opponent's shape horizontally uh, because you know they're going quickly wide. And you know that tempo, the speed of the pass is really important to like kind of create that sense of danger and force the opponent to quickly shift over to the you know the wide areas. And then you know as the Marnos fullback is receiving it, so here it's Nagato, then it's the Marnos wingers, and then the striker that usually makes a run behind the defenders and pushes the defense lines backwards. So that's um, stretching the opponent vertically. So now that you've done that, you know. A lot of space opens up back inside from where the fullback is, because you know the opponent center midfielders have shifted over to the wide areas, and then the um, attackers. So here it's like um, Osako and Sasaki. They're still further forward, and then this is the area where guys like Nishimura or uh, one of the center midfielders like Kota Watanabe like to receive, because then they have a lot of room to work with. And so from here. And it's usually around like this big gap that appears around the halfway line because the defenders kind of retreat and the uh, attackers are kind of still wide. That then these uh, players, once they receive the ball inside, they you know they could carry the ball up into the final third by themselves, into the space created by the teammates pushing the defense backwards, mm-hmm. or you know they can quickly play a through ball into these teammates. Or they can even switch it across to the weaker side where the um, opponents aren't anymore. Because when you first play the ball out wide, then everyone shifted over. And now the other side is completely open. And that's kind of why, you know, um, Minos really like to keep their wingers really high up the pitch rather than having them pull back to defend. And that like that's part of the reason why you, know, you might say that, you know, Minos can be a bit vulnerable defensively, but they willingly take that risk because they want to have these um, movements to uh, open up space back centrally for, uh, you know, players like Nishimura, uh, Kota Watanabe, and, you know, in previous years, it was uh, Marcos Jr. being able to, you know, cause a lot of havoc um, receiving from these spaces. But um, here in this game, you know, what I just, just described is like, you know, the ideal Marinos and like what they want to do. But in this game, Marinos couldn't do this because Kobe's wide players work really hard and they caught up to the Marinos fullbacks receiving. So like in this case, you know, Eno, I'm not to say Eno was like right on top of Nagato as he was, you know, receiving the ball at wide and pressuring him. So Nagato didn't have like the kind of wherewithal or like the time or space to, you know, find Nishimura back inside. And then, you know, Ogihara and Yamaguchi were running really hard back to closing Nishimura down. So, you know, that option wasn't available anyway. And so the only option remaining was, you know, down the line to Albert. But Sakai was ready and there to intercept the ball. And that's what he did. So, so often, um, you know, good defending comes from simply eliminating the attacking team's choices and making it simple for the defender to focus on the lone remaining threat. So, like... So stuff like that, rather than like the actual quality of the action to win the ball, win the ball back itself, like a good tackle or like a brave header headed clearance or whatnot. So, 
know, like Marnos are usually like the kings of making defenses hesitate and like uh, getting confused about which kind of option they need to defend. Uh, but I you know not this time because Kobe did really well and it was really easy for Sakai to just focus on, you know, intercepting that pass into Elbert because every other option was completely closed down. So, yeah, that's one really important scene I thought I wanted to highlight. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I kind of went off on a long spiel there, but yeah. No, no, great detail. We uh, very much appreciate it, Riel. So, well, uh, shortly after uh, that incident you've just described, uh, Johnny, uh, Kobe went ahead and you said on last week's episode how important the first goal in this game would be. And we know, of course, in the reverse fixture, uh, Kobe went 2-0 up inside the first half hour, but it was uh, F. Marino's getting it back to 2-2 by half time before going on to win 3-2 at the Norivir Stadium. So, yes, the incident then in the 19th minute when a cross was headed across the box by Yuya Osako and Yoshinori Muto was caught on his uh, shooting boot by Eduardo as he attempted a, a volley. Um, the play was allowed to continue, but at the next stoppage, uh, the referee, Mr. Nishimura, was called over to check the monitor and eventually awarded a penalty that Osako scored to uh, t- send him top of the scoring chart with his uh, personal best 20th goal of the J1 season. So, um, yeah, I don't think anybody can have too many complaints about the the penalty decision that was ultimately reached. But, um, yes, the vital breakthrough came for for Kobe and um, yeah Osako getting as I said his personal best 20th goal of the season to get the ball rolling yeah I can, I can definitely feel Muto's pain I've actually done that once before like swinging through to kick the ball and you just someone just catches you between the, the foot and the leg and it's really really painful when it when it happens and yeah absolutely no doubt it was a was the correct decision and I, I really liked uh, Osako had never looked like he was going to miss you know the, the way he changed the angle of attack just before he moved in to take the penalty a uh, really like really confident penalty and he's the person you'd want taking a penalty like that I think maybe at that time of the game, Marinos had spent an awful lot of time in the, their own defensive third. They sort of got pinned in at certain times with, with Vissel having a lot of good attacking opportunities. I think Muto played really well, as, as Rio mentioned earlier, and he, I think he ended up having seven shots across the whole game. It was a constant constant menace and attack. So, yeah, it's kind of thinking like the time the ball was getting there, what more could Eduardo have done? I mean, he could maybe have just used his body to block the ball, but then there's a the risk of giving away a handball. You almost have to stop the ball at source, like stop it getting in there. But the ball was getting very close to Mariner's goal on too many occasions for, for Kevin Muscat's liking. So, yeah, yes, strike one to, to Vissel. But, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Ben, in the, in the first game, they went 2-0 up and they were still pegged back. So they couldn't have got too, too ahead of themselves um, just, just that early in the game. No, absolutely. And then, well, as the, the first half continued, Rio, um, did you feel there was much of a response from F. Marinos? As us, you know, as we we all know, there there tends to be a pattern in uh, in J1 games where one side tends to, uh, well, yeah, dominate proceedings, not necessarily always hogging the chances, but you can often sense a momentum shift during um, during a game or from half to half. And I didn't really pick up on that. I didn't really sense that F. Marinos had really grown into the game all that much by the time, uh, spoiler alert, Yoshinori Muto made it 2-0 three minutes before the break. But, um, yeah, what sort of a response did you did you feel there was from F. Marinos? And did their, um, their breakdown in their attacking patterns uh, persist throughout the first half, the way you saw it? 
Yeah, pretty much. They kept trying to do the kind of the things that I described before, um, right before we kind of started talking about the penalty. Um, but yeah, like as I said, yeah, like Kobe were just so much more aggressive, so much more sharp. Um, um, and yeah, they yeah, as Johnny said, and we all agree, kind of they pinned Marinos into their own half a lot of the times, and it was really difficult. Now on the penalty, like I was. Yeah, it was interesting because, like, you know, I feel like in the past, like, defenders could get away with murder as long as the attack was able to get a shot off, right? <laughs> so it's nice to see stuff like this game penalized because, you know, it was definitely it is a foul, right? You know, Eduardo is late. He gets his studs right to Muto's foot after he shot it. So, you know, maybe unfortunate for Marinos because maybe in the past that doesn't get called. But, you know, it's it's the right decision, right? Like, we saw with Mitsuki Saito's injuries, like what can happen when fouls after a shot is taken isn't really noticed or penalized. So like we know really need to p- protect the players and we need to like properly punish these types of fouls. You know, even if there are um, unintentional, like, you know, Eduardo here is just trying to block the shot, but he kind of just, you know, is a bit late and has his studs up. So, yeah. So, you know, the penalty calls like this are you know appropriate, I thought. Yep, fair enough then. Uh, so the second goal then, it came just before the break, as I mentioned. Uh, Rio had to say sent over an in-swinging corner from the Kobe right. Uh, Muto rose above Eduardo and headed on target. Takuma Nishimura had come forward off the post and the ball went over his attempt to clear and bounced into the net. So, uh, yeah, well, you always got to leave someone on the post, don't you guys? Or if you're going to start him there, then, yeah, commit to leaving him there because uh, Nishimura uh, wandered into uh, more into the field of play than probably he would have uh, even realised he'd done. And, uh, and yes, he was unable to, to keep the ball out. And, yeah, Muto had the reward for his uh, typical all-action performance and um well yes a former favorite of both of ours Rio obviously as a former FC Tokyo player Yoshinori Muto how uh well I think I already know the answer to this but how impressed have you been with him this season and how well he settled in especially of course with his partnership with uh, Yuya Osako they do work so well together as a tandem yeah yeah I absolutely watch love watching uh Osako and Muto play which is really frustrating because you know Muto I really wish Muto came back to FC Tokyo. Um, mm. I was booing him a lot during the uh, uh, Viso Kobe FC Tokyo game at the Kokuritsu with um, a lot of other FC Tokyo fans in the audience. Um, but yeah, yeah, like like all those injury-stricken years in Europe, it's almost like a weird dream, right? Like this Muto that we're seeing in the past like two seasons, he's just he's just a machine. Like he just never stops running. And you know, it's not just about like you know working hard but like it's just the quality of his play in every facet of of his game that's you know it's great it's incredible and it's like the best upfront partnership in the j league in the past few years i think yeah and it's um the the goal that muto scored uh, off that corner kick is pretty interesting uh because if you look really really closely at the replays you can see that muto is being marked by kota watanabe at first but then, you know, Muto makes this uh, quick, quick movement inside. Like he's he's at the far post and then he makes a quick um, run inside. And then it's actually Yuki Honda that's like trying to block him, right? And then that's how um, Muto was able to get free and beat uh, Eduardo to the header. I know. So that was pretty interesting because you know, like all these set piece routines um, have been getting a lot of traction in the. Uh, 
football and soccer. Um, and a lot of like um, set piece coaches have started to make their mark on the game. And it's interesting because like um, a lot of these set piece coaches a lot, you like to use a lot of these basketball concepts. So like here it was like um, like pick and pick and roll or, like blocking, right? So like Muto would move away and then Honda would you know be standing there trying to block Watanabe and then you know th- that's how Muto was able to escape and uh, head um, in off of Eduardo's blind side because he didn't know Muto was gonna be free because he was supposed to be marked by you know Watanabe. So you know if you wanna watch the replay of that closely, like that's something interesting to watch uh, to um, to see. So mm. yeah. Yep. All right then. Thanks, real. So uh, yeah, it was two uh, nil. At the break, so uh, Kobe yeah made it through uh, uh, to halftime with that uh, precious advantage. Johnny, of, of course, fully aware of what had happened, as we said earlier in the in the reverse fixture. But um, yeah, F Muddy knows as the uh, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but as the second half wore on, yes, uh, as I said earlier with Anderson Lopez, they they seem to cut um, yeah quite frustrated figures. In especially in attacking areas, and it was often left to uh, to Jan Mateus to try his luck either from distance or from tight angles. And while he was close on a couple of occasions, and did force Daya Maikawa uh, into action one or two times, it was um, yeah more individual actions rather than flowing team moves uh, that uh, F Marinos appeared to be relying on. And yeah, with Kobe in uh, such. Good form, uh, not only going forward, but as you, you've both mentioned, in defence in this game, it was um, yeah, it just proved to be too hard uh, of a road back for the defending champions. Yeah, I think at the beginning of the second half, Mar- Mariners looked a bit staggered, a bit a bit shell shocked. It took them about ten minutes to really get going, and I think they sailed a couple of shots at the start of the second half. Nothing too dangerous. I, I mean, I have to admit, I watched I watched the first half of this game live, and then I watched the second half of the game earlier today on, on Monday. So. Yeah, I knew there wasn't many goals in the second half, but yeah, Mariners, yeah, a lot of their shots, it, it tended to either be you know, from distance outside the box or it was also like, like from a tight angle. Um, I think there's a couple of saves Mayakawa had to make, but nothing too, too dangerous. I mean, again, as, as the game went on, Vissel obviously had something to, to defend, whereas Mariners had to, to go for it a bit more. But even so, there was never really a... a proper onslaught, perhaps for kind of reasons we've already d- discussed. And it kind of came to, to Marinos having sort of shots from distance. But then Visa always had the, the out ball. They were always able to counterattack. And the longer the game went on, they brought on like so Jean-Patrick and, and Mizuki Arai. And, you know, th- those, those guys were able to sort of waste a lot of time like running the ball down the flanks. And, yeah, it's in it. I say petered out. It's not really the right term for a, for a championship decider. But, you know, it kind of had the feeling with about 20, 25 minutes to go. I mean, Marinos might have nicked a goal and it would have made things very interesting, but yeah, it seemed quite kind of inevitable. Vissel were the better team, and they're a better team by quite a long way, as, as we saw by watching, and also a lot of the, the stats would suggest. So, yeah, yeah, I can't really argue, and I don't think Kevin Muscat or, or Marinos can really argue that the better side won, won in the night. But, I mean, what about yourself, Fjord? I mean, how did you see that second half, like Marinos trying to get back into it? Were you a bit disappointed with how, how they went about things? Yeah, as you said, it was pretty disappointing. And like, as you said, like a lot of the shots were outside the box or there weren't, there were clear shots, but like they weren't really troubling Maikawa that much. I will say that I think Jan Mateos was, you know, individually really good. Like as, as you and Ben mentioned, like he was 
really, really trying out there. Like he was really constantly trying to make good out of really bad situations, right? And, you know, I think a lot of credit should go to him um, in terms of him being kind of like Marnos' man of the match, I think. Even mm. though, like, mm. a lot of, you know, what he tried was unsuccessful. Like, but his individual quality through his dribbling and passing to drive Marnos forward was, like, the one kind of, like, outlet for uh, Marnos in attack, right? Um, but, yeah, like, a lot of credit should still go to um, the Zokobi's defense because I thought they were excellent. Like, especially Yuki Honda. In the first half, you know, he was doing really well as a center back, shutting down Lopez and Nishimura. But, you know, um, after a Ryo Hatsuse went off due to injury, uh, Tudor came on, and then Honda shifted over to left back, and I was like, ooh, maybe this will be when, you know, Yamateo starts, you know, causing havoc. But that wasn't really the case, was it? You know, like, um, Yuki Honda did really well. Like, there were two scenes, especially. Um, one, the 73rd minute, and one another in the 75th minute where Yuki Honda really shepherded Yamateus really well in the box and it was just really good defending to see. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I concur that, yeah, Yamateus was the, the most impressive of the uh, F. Marino's attackers. But, yeah, as the second half wore on, yeah, it, it just grew uh, more and more difficult for F. Marino's, it seemed. And, indeed, uh, Kobe could have made it three uh, seven minutes from time, but uh, Jun Ichimori made a, a flying save low to his right to keep out a, a 25-yard Hotaro Yamaguchi blast. And, uh, yes, it uh, it ended up 2-0 to Kobe. Their halftime advantage stood. And as uh, Johnny said, and uh, Rio has as well, they ran out worthy winners on the evening to open up a four-point gap at the top of J1 with five games remaining in the top-flight season. We know Kobe still have a lot of testing fixtures ahead of them but uh, yes they've they're checking them off one by one and uh, yeah they obviously didn't come any bigger than last friday nights and uh, yes mission accomplished at the nissan stadium and well you look up johnny and uh, f muddy nose are uh, third from bottom in the last five form table only behind nagoya and cover your ears mate gumba osaka who have only taken two points each from their last five league games at Yokohama, if Marinos only have four. So what Rio has detailed earlier on about those uh, the, the F Marinos build-up play and how ready Kobe were for it to, to work their socks off, basically, to uh, to prevent F Marinos attacking in their normal fluent fashion. Do you think F Marinos have been found out in recent weeks, or do you think it's a, a combination of... Uh, that and also their uh, their struggles with injuries and and not having Muscat not having the personnel at his disposal that he would um, normally have if everybody was fit and available. Um, I guess it's probably six to one and a half of the other, but um, yeah, they they've certainly um, well they've struggled for results and they've they're certainly not looking like the uh, the F Madinos of old, as you've said yourself earlier on in the episode. Yeah, I think there's a kind of combination of, of several factors. I mean, I actually, I took the, what we talked about the past couple of weeks about Nagoya, the 10-game stretch, and Marino's only have 12 points in the last 10 games. So it's it's been quite a long kind of kind of spell of, of poor form, three wins, three draws, four four losses. I think you mentioned the, the, the injuries. I think you are quite right to point out that Muscat is not exactly the same as, as Postacoglu, but they are playing very, they've been playing very similar football since 2018. Usually very, very successful. And teams know how they're going to play, but it's, it's much harder to stop. Again, it is easier to stop if players are, are injured. And, and also what I'll maybe call the, the Postacoglu-Mitoma effect, where 
know, I think maybe since the 2010 World Cup, players have been getting plucked from the J League more and more regularly. And I think in the last few years, I mean, there's even talk, I think Rangers fired their manager yesterday, today, Michael Beale. So there's talk about Kevin Muscat potentially heading over to Scotland. I don't have any more than that other than wild speculation. But yeah, I think all, all of those factors have kind of put into to Marinos you know, being easier to get at, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, their, their stats are not particularly great this season. They don't really point to a team that over the course of the season is a, is a title contender, so credit to them for, for being there. But I think, you know, looking at those those last five fixtures, the form Mariners are in, I mean, even to say that they were to get 10 points from the five games is a bit of a stretch at the minute, which if you put Urawa taking all the points, including defeating Vissel Kobe, would only give them 65 and Mariners 64, which would mean that you know, Visa would only need eight points from the last five games, which are, are not easy. But, I mean, I have to hold my hands up and say, you know, when we looked ahead to these fixtures, I didn't predict that Nagoya would completely fall off a cliff. And also, sort of teams won't, won't have a whole lot to play for, whereas Visa are going for a title. You know, I'm sorry for Koka fans, I don't think you're going to finish third. So I think the Emperor's Cup winner is, is not going to be from the top three. So you might even have teams at like Kashima don't have a whole lot riding in the, their game against Vsel. So there's, there's pressure. They've never been there before. They, they could, yeah, is the J League, they could absolutely falter. But I think, yeah, very much advantage, advantage to, to Vsel. Um, uh, how about yourself, um, Rio? I mean, we don't usually press guests to, to, to pick the, the, the winners, so don't don't worry about that. But <laughs> I mean, how, how impressed slash disappointed have you been by, with Marinos? And, do you think they, they have what it takes to kind of come back from this disappointment? Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because um, in my mid-season review, uh, my uh, newsletter for Shogun Soccer, um, I um, I, I kind of just chose Viso as the potential uh, title winners. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that was mostly because, yeah, as we've kind of talked about, like Marnos, you know, they're, they're still second, right? Like for mm-hmm. all the kind of, you know, uh, talk about Marinos having been that great and kind of disparaging their performances and Muscat not being, you know, on Japostagogu 2.0. Like, there's, they, they've still been second and they even won the title last year. Like, even with all that, like, it is, um, it's really tough to see Marinos being able to uh, um, over overtake Visokobe now in, the less, in this last stretch of games. Because like they really need Kobe to like drop uh, at least two games, and then you know Marinos to like make up that make up that number like four points. It's it doesn't seem like a lot, but like that's like two wins that you need to make up on Viso Kobe to actually overtake them, right? So yeah, yeah, it's gonna be really difficult for Marinos. Yep, so it does appear that uh, Kobe have the metal, uh, if uh, Friday is any indication. And, uh, yeah, they've got a couple of weeks now to uh, to ready themselves for the run-in with, uh, yeah, no J1 fixtures over the next couple of weekends. All right, so mission accomplished at the Nissan Stadium for the league leaders. And, uh, yes, that gap, as we said, is now four points with five games to play. All right, then, uh, we'll move on, gents, to the uh, the clash um, that, well, yeah, normally wouldn't be getting second billing uh, on this week's episode with uh, obviously a lot of things to, to be determined at uh, either end of the J1 table this late in the season. But with uh, Rio here and uh, obviously Johnny uh, uh, as a co-host, we thought, yes, we'd, uh, we'd get 
uh, some uh, FC Tokyo Gumbo Osaka coverage in early in this episode. And uh, as I said off the top, Rio, it was a, a good afternoon on Sunday to be an FC Tokyo supporter. At the the gas men running out 3-0 victors over Gumba before a similar crowd to Friday night at the Nissan Stadium. Uh, just over 30,000 in attendance, part of uh, FC Tokyo's 25th anniversary celebrations. And, uh, well, you went home a happy camper from Ajista for a change. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I was still kind of disappointed in the first, like, around 30 minutes of the game because I thought Gamba would get were, uh, better in that stretch of the match. But uh, I guess we'll get into that. But, yeah, overall, really happy um, uh, with that, with that, with the match in particular, maybe not with uh, FC Tokyo in general. But um, I think we'll get to that after we talk about the game. Um, yeah, like... Matsuki and Harakawa look good in midfield. Um, Kota Tawara Tsumida got another goal, you know, right after his um, dramatic winner last time out. So, yeah, there's lots of good things to talk about. Um, but, you know, there's still some lingering concerns that I have had, like, for, you know, I think not just this season, for like the past two years, even more, I think. And I think you, uh, I think we have certain things we are in agreement with in that regard. Yes, yes. I'm just glad to have somebody on who can speak coherently about FC Tokyo um, makes a big change from myself. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so Tawara Tsumide not only scoring a goal, Rio, I think he scored a goal of the season contender, an absolute uh, fantastic goal with the 12 minutes left. But, yes, we'll get to that. And, Johnny, um, well, yeah, I think Rio said it. The first half hour wasn't uh, Tokyo at their sharpest, uh, definitely. And uh, did uh, Gumba have a case for feeling pretty hard done to after a, a challenge on uh, Ryotaro Meshino in the box in the in the tenth minute, looked like he might have had a decent shot for a penalty there. I mean, uh, honestly, I'm I'm a Gamba fan, and I didn't really think it was a, a penalty. I think if if you got that, I mean, obviously I knew it was coming on here and it was may be outnumbered, so I might have been thinking a certain certain way. But yeah, there's probably contact. I think he's looking for it. I think Meshino's picked up a trick or two when he's in Europe, and honestly, I wouldn't. Yeah. It, if, if, you, if it was given, I think we'll, we'll get on to later in the show. I think there's been worse decisions this week rather than if that had been given. But, yeah, I, I didn't really really think it was a penalty. I, I did agree with Rio. Well, I agree with Rio, but from the other side, I thought uh, Gamba started at the first, uh, up to the first uh, half hour. I think Gamba started pretty well. Some some pretty good counter-attacking. Usami j- just missed a chance. And you know, it, it did have a bit of a feel of a, a game between two, two mid-table sides. And I was kind of wondering uh, how we're going to, how can fit this in as the second game on the on the slate tonight? But yeah, obviously I think uh, FC Tokyo kind of turned the screw a little bit, and yeah, Gamba's defending, particularly in, in away games, hasn't been great, and that was to come to the fore um, to a great great degree later on in the game, wasn't it? Indeed, indeed. So yeah, Usami screwed a shot wide in the twentieth minute, and then I think from there Tokyo began. To, uh, to grow into the game a little bit. Just past the half hour, uh, Ryoma Watanabe's a near post flick on from a corner was saved by uh, Masaki Higashiguchi. But four minutes later, he was unable to keep out a shot from uh, Riki Harakawa, who uh, Rios mentioned has uh, settled in uh, to life at Tokyo quite well. And uh, yes, scored his first league goal for Tokyo after some neat interplay in the box after the ball was worked in 
from the right. And then uh, before half time, it was Tokyo were able to make it 2 0 Riol when uh, Diego Oliveira beat Higashiguchi to uh, Dialton's uh, deaf chip over the defence. It touched the ball past the keeper and rolled into an empty net. And Diego's up to 14 on the season just quietly. Um, yeah, if you had have quizzed me before the game, I wouldn't have guessed he was on, uh, you know, anywhere near that number. But again, it has been another productive season. And well, we've had to have it simply, haven't we, as Tokyo supporters, because Adalton's numbers have dropped right off. And uh, yeah, once again, we're, Tokyo really struggled for goals from midfield. So hopefully this from Harakawa is a start of uh, yeah, things to come from him, not only in the uh, the last uh, couple of months of the season, but uh, yes, in uh, in terms of how Tokyo can uh, progress going forward in, uh, pre- in seasons to come. Oh, yeah. So like, yeah, Diego's been, you know, fantastic. Um, you know, compared to like last season where he, I think he only got like four goals last season where he really struggled uh, but like all throughout, even on his down years or down times, like he always works really hard, right? Like he's always bullying center backs. He's always, um, you know, uh, fighting for every every single ball. Um, and yeah, like this was another really great uh, great game from him. Um, and yeah, like it's a worry for FC Tokyo because you know he's not getting any younger. And we've been saying this already for the past few years now. Um, like and and again we don't really have goals coming from other people in the team. Yeah, like Nakagawa's had a few goals. Um, Ryoma Matanabe also has a few goals, but they're kind of well. Like Nakagawa gets injured every so often, while Ryoma Watanabe kind of kind of like today, um, where he just seems really off. Like he creates chances, but then he misses some really obvious ones, or he makes the wrong choice. Um, I was talking with uh, Tom Thomas Pennington um, throughout the match, where we were really annoyed at um, Ryoma Watanabe's decision making throughout the match, where you know we really FC Tokyo really could have you know been like four or five or six nil six nil up at by the end of the game if it wasn't for um, Ryoma Watanabe. So yeah, um, and it's been a big problem, you know, goal scoring for FC Tokyo for quite a while now. Um, yeah, we're just not getting enough goals elsewhere. And yeah, like that's when we've been hoping it will be, you know, Kuriyamatsuki or, um, you know, and before, like when we had Shuto Abe, that they will kind of, you know, pop up and score a bit more and contribute a bit more, but they haven't been able to do that. So yeah, that's, it's been a bit of a disappointment. Indeed, indeed. All right. So yeah, as the, uh, the second half, Got going, Teruhito Nakagawa was denied by Higashiguchi. Watanabe later hit the post before Oliveira shot too close to the keeper. And, uh, well, trying to make a, a tenuous link to the first game we talked about, Johnny, there wasn't much of a second-half fight back from uh, from F. Marinos in terms of, um, well, coherent um, chances created. Um, were you uh, really disappointed with uh, not putting words in your mouth, but really disappointed with uh, with Gumba's second half display because um, you know two 0 down at the break, it was still there for them to work their way back into the game. But uh, yeah, uh, again, I get, again in similar vein to F Marinos, it just wasn't Gumba's day. And uh, did you uh, did your fr- frustration grow as the second half wore on? Yeah, this this was awful. I watched a lot of the second half through, like, through my my fingers. I, I don't think it's really you can't really compare Gamba to to Marinos. They just 
you know, as they've done so many times away from home th- this season, they concede one goal. And one goal is not the end of the world. If you're going at half-time, 1-0 down, come out to the start of the second half, the longer the game goes at 1-0, FC Tokyo might get nervous, they might make a mistake. But no, Gamba have to go and concede a second goal right away, kill the game off. And you know, in recent weeks, I've been having to go at Shota Fukuoka, but I was begging for him to come on for Kyung, uh, Kwon Kyung Won at half-time. He just had an absolute nightmare. As Rio said, Diego Oliveira likes to bully centre-backs. He just bullied uh, Quan the whole game. You know, Quan's nickname is Diego, so it was the battle of the Diegos, but you know, he gave away two fouls. Ricky Harakawa got by him like he wasn't there. I mean, I'm not going to put it all on him, but as, a, as an international defender who's been Kim Min-jae's backup in the South Korean national team for years, this just was a, an awful display. And Gamba have got that spine there, Higashiguchi, Quan, but the, the mid, much-wanted midfield, you do Sammy up front. I mean, Poyatos has rightly been, been slaughtered in, in the Gamba kind of social media about his, his tactics, but I'm sure you can back me up. I don't think when it went to 1-0, Poyatos wasn't on the touchline screaming, panic, 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 we must equalise before half-time. So why Gamba, until about the 70th minute, seemed to be in a daze from that first goal? They conceded a second, as you mentioned, Ben, it could, as Rio mentioned as well, it could have been five or six before the hour mark. Gamba were just all at sea, and it was just it was horrible, horrible stuff. And then, ironically, as, as Gamba kind of, I think they brought Jabali on, and they, they got a little bit of forward momentum. They looked like they might just, there's a slight chance they might get a goal. Then the, the game was killed off 3-0. And, I mean, the only positive thing I can think to say is that it didn't end up the usual 4-0 hiding. And you know, maybe, you know, this is the fourth meeting of these two sides, and the, the, all the all the results have gone to the, the home team. But, I mean, Gamba, they're doing much better at home in general, but recently results have been quite bad, as you mentioned, the last five games. And as great as this was for, for FC Tokyo fans, I'm sure, Rio, I think you said in, on, on Twitter that it was a kind of party atmosphere before the game and you hoped it continued after. I'm sure it was a real good party atmosphere, but it was a more of a funeral atmosphere for, for Gamba fans, I'm afraid. Yeah, I was really surprised at um, how Gamba started the second half. Because like within 30 seconds, Tokyo nearly scored a third, <laughs> right? And like you would you would thought like just what like if you started with the match, watching from the second from the start of the second half, you'd think that FC Tokyo were the team that were two 0 down, but mm-hmm. they weren't. <laughs> and yeah, like but still, I think there were um uh, there were some good things to talk about in terms of Gamba. Osaka, it's like, and that's really the first 30 minutes or so of the match. And like, I thought like they were really good and FC Tokyo were really bad because Gamba were like, they're really good at finding spaces. Um, and they especially did this really well to find you know, little gaps uh, between uh, Tokyo's, you know, structure, especially in midfield. Um, you know, they make good use of the numbers advantage in midfield because, you know, it's, um, Gamba have uh, Lavi, Dawan, and Yuki Yamamoto as a three, whereas you know FC Tokyo have a two with um, you know Matsuki and Harakawa as a double pivot. Um, since FC Tokyo are like a four-four-two when they're in defensive shape, right? So I think Gamba did really well, kind of passing the ball from side to side and forcing Matsuki and Harakawa to shift over to one side. And then you know Lavi or Yuki Yamamoto would find players on the opposite ch- opposite side really quickly. So I think like a nice nice pass or like a nice long, long diagonal ball and then you know it was usually someone like Meshino on the right or Kurokawa on the left uh, bombing up bombing up 
uh, on the left, um, you know, being able to charge into the final third with speed because, you know, that's where a lot of the space was once um, Tokyo's midfield was shipped over to one side. They'll leave the other one open naturally. So, you know, like the examples where we saw like uh, the 16th minute, you know, Usami played a night, uh, need to lay off to Yuki Yamamoto and they spread it to Meshino. And then they were able, Gamoe were able to enter the final third really nicely. And then that um, 19th minute chance for Usami, where he uh, where his uh, shot just skipped past the far post, like that was really that was a really nice bit of play uh, in the lead up to that shot. And yeah, so like in the in those first 30 minutes, I was really worried because of like how many times, you know, Matsuki and Harukawa were bypassed, um, you know, but you know, Gamma simply weren't able to finish off their chances. And you know, as the half went on, I think what made Tokyo um, get better was they were able to kind of start catching Gamma players and winning the ball often directly, you know, man-to-man, you know, you know duels, um, you know, going for um, 50-50 balls and, like, with Diego versus, you know, Gamba's Diego, right? <laughs> and then, so, when it came to, like, these duels and these physical matchups, like, Gamba just really didn't stand a chance. And that's slowly, and that's kind of, like, why slowly FC Tokyo were able to get the grips with the game because whereas when Gamba were able to uh, pass it around away from where FC Tokyo were then you know they had all the advantages but when they came to like actual 50-50 clashes where like the you know, player on player would be fighting for the ball then you know Tokyo's physicality because you know FC Tokyo has tons of really really big strong guys all over the pitch from you know from back to front right so and yeah that's um yeah, that's how they were able to t- turn the game around. All right, guys. So, yeah, to this, uh, to Waratsumi, the goal then. Uh, for me, it's Tokyo's goal of the season, and it's, um, yeah, I can't even think of what the runner-up might be. Uh, so 12 minutes from time, uh, Tawaratumida collected a defensive header from Yuto Nagatomo 10 yards inside his own half and raced off down the left with uh, Isam Jabali and uh, Ryu Takao too close for comfort out by the touchline. Tawaratumida simply backheel nutmegged Takao and strode into the box before lifting a, a terrific finish across Higashi Gucci. Um, yeah, well, we wonder how good this kid's going to be. Um, it was, uh, yeah, a goal in uh, two straight games for him. As uh, Riol mentioned, he got the uh, he got the winner last week against Tosu, and obviously that's done him a huge amount of good in terms of his confidence and able to play with freedom and properly express himself. Then, uh, yeah, this was uh, an absolutely terrific goal. And, uh, yeah, sorry, Johnny, but a bit of a late salt into you wounds there from uh, Tawara Tsumida. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you're going to lose, at least you can lose to beautiful goals like that. Even if I was maybe cursing out Yutakao for his, his defending, uh, I think uh, when I met uh, Yo actually earlier in the season at the Yokohama FC Gamba game, I think we, we both had the same opinion about Takao's defending, but he was he was back there and yeah, Tawara he was on, he was full of full of energy and he, he just wanted he wanted the ball, he wanted to play with the ball and so it's a wonderful finish and you think the feeling he must have had going home with that stadium cheering for him and beating an international goalkeeper like uh, Masaki Higashiguchi. So uh, I think he, he's he's been featuring a lot recently and I, I really, really hope that FC Tokyo fans can give him some sort of nickname so they don't have to keep saying his name all the time because I think we're going to be seeing it quite a lot in, in future games. But you know, I think, as, as we mentioned before, this was a, a very satisfying result for, for FC Tokyo, but... I think you, you teased it last week, Ben, about um, Yo had been saying he wasn't really happy with the club uh, as a whole. And I was kind of, it got me thinking, uh, I think maybe quite a lot of people who read uh, your, your Shogun Soccer newsletter 
and also people who might be familiar with some of the FC Tokyo front office work in recent years might might think this might be quite a good idea. Um, is to imagine general manager Ryo. So Ryo, I'm going to ask you to to imagine you're in charge of FC Tokyo this this winter. The, the transfer strategy. Who do you want straight out the door? Who do you really want to keep? And which positions would you like to see upgrades in? And, and if possible, any particular names you might you might like to see the club target? It's, it's over to you. Um, right. So, well, first, let me talk about uh, uh, Tawaratsumi does goal. Because, yeah, like I, I, I really want to talk about that one. Because I thought, you know, when he first went off down the wing, like he was kind of going down a blind alley, right? There are two players that are closing him down. But then, you know, just the you know, piece of genius, right? Just kind of turn around and then do the back heel through the legs. Mm. But even then, like, he's approaching the uh, goal at, like, such a tight angle. And, like, he's going up against, like you said, Johnny, you know, um, a really, really good goalkeeper in Higashiguchi. And uh, he still manages to just curl it straight into the uh, side netting on the opposite side. And just a fantastic finish. Fantastic. Yeah, I couldn't... Uh, go through this podcast without uh, talking gushing about that one <laughs> yeah um so anyway in regard to um yeah to your main question yeah i have a lot of things to say about fc tokyo's transfer dealings in the past couple of years um i felt like fc tokyo have haven't done enough of a squad turnover to uh, mm-hmm. get to the kind of um playing style that the club supposedly wants the club wants like talks a lot about oh we want to play more possession football and that's why we hired um abera uh, i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly but they <laughs> they really didn't give him the sort of players in the first place right like so many of the players that remained were still the old guard from Kenta Hasegawa's time, and they still are currently in the squad two years later. One of the things I would start off with is, um, like, in terms of a goalkeeper, right? So this is a big one. I just don't understand why we went for Jakub Slovak when Albert first became our manager, right? Like, it, we, we wanted to play, you know, building it out from the back, uh, a, a goalkeeper who should be w- good with their feet, and that's everything Slowick is not. Mm-hmm. So like we, and then we spent two years having to see Slowick really struggle in pos- in possession, giving the ball away, or just kind of panicking and you know kicking along and just not really following what you know this club wants to do um, in the build up. And like even worse, like there's there's been times where Slowick just hasn't been a great goalkeeper either so like it's like okay we have Slowick, we can't really get rid of him but at least he's a good goalkeeper right but like you know there's been times where he hasn't been that either so it's like it's like a double you know it's like a double whammy like it's he's not good with the build-up and he hasn't been a good goalkeeper at times um where but you know but still like you know there's been many times where he has saved our skins but um yeah like in general i feel like why did we go for Sloak in the first place? Um, so in terms of like replacements, um, the first thing I thought, like when Aber Puich came in as a manager, would be like, we would at least try to go with uh, Go Hatano for at least six months. Mm-hmm. And then Albert will see like, oh, like, is he good enough? Is he not good enough? Because, you know, Hatano's 
actually decent with his feet. So I was actually surprised when we loaned him out to uh, Nagasaki. So early in terms of like a replacement, I don't know, like just off the top of my head, um, like maybe someone like Kojima, you know, mm-hmm. who plays at um, Albrecht Niigata. He's really mm-hmm. good with his feet. You know, he's not like a soup. Maybe he's not like the best, best shot stopper in the league, but he's still pretty decent, I think. Like he's made ton, uh, quite a number of good saves, especially since, you know, Niigata aren't that great defensively. We tried playing Nozawa for a couple games, but like I saw a lot of weaknesses on him, in him. Um, he was, you know, at least trying to be a lot more uh, proactive in the buildups, which was nice, you know, and he was also trying to be more of a sweeper keeper. So like he had, you know, the kind of like the right temperament, but like in terms of his actual goalkeeping skills, he's not really like a J1 starting goalkeeper, especially not one for where, you know, where FC Tokyo want to be, which is like closer to the top of the table. So, yeah, and then the other big problem is the center backs. I imagine we're going to slowly start phasing Morishige out sooner rather than later. He's like, what, 36 now, I think? And like, he's still actually like one of our, one of the best passers in the team, especially when it comes to like, you know, long passes. And, but like, you know, like he, he, he can't play forever. <laughs> he really can't. And it's the same problem we've been having with Diego. Like, we've, you know, we kept them on. They've been helping us stay. Well, like, you know, I, I still love these guys. Morishige, Dio, like, fantastic. But, like, it's, you know, it's like it's a ticking time bomb. The longer we keep playing them, after, like, the age around, like, let's say 33, 34, like, the drop-off can be really sudden and really huge, right, in terms of, like, uh, players uh, selling just not being able to play anymore, play really well anymore, especially at the top level, especially at the J1 level. Right, so I'm really wondering about the type of center backs we might be signing, and then whether someone like Seiji Kimura would be um, starting to uh, play a lot more games, especially now that you know FC Tokyo season is over. Right, it's been over since you know we uh, lost the uh, which which was it the League Cup or the Emperor's Cup a month ago. So you know we have nothing else to play for. Win mid table. So it'll be interesting to see how Peter. Uh, Klamowski goes forward with um, the next couple of games until the end of the season because yeah, it'll be interesting to see Kimura play a lot more. And I think I think Kimura was on loan at Peter Klamowski's Montedio Yamagata side a couple of years ago. So I think you know I think there's reason to believe that he could you know try to work with them again to go you know take up that starting spot. So I don't know we'll see. In terms of fullbacks, I think we're just, it's not that they're bad. I think they're actually okay. And, like, there's not really, I doubt there's really going to be much change because we have so many. Like, it's a mm-hmm. position we're really deep in. You know, Kashif Banganagande, he keeps getting injured, which is really disappointing because, you know, I've liked him for a few seasons now, but he just doesn't really get a, a, a good run of games. Um, Nagatomo, he's still useful in terms of he plays on and he can play on either side so that's nice and he's he actually you know he actually like really bought into Albert's uh style of play and he you know he plays in that inverted fullback kind of role playing tucked into midfield and you know he he he, he keeps trying like i i do get annoyed by him a lot of times but he's still you know like he's still really like the heartbeat of this side and yeah like i don't like there's no universe where we're just going to let him go especially not after this season i don't think that's going to happen 
I'm just hoping Hotaka Nakamura comes back from injury really well because he was playing really, really well before he got injured. And he was another one of those players that really grew under Albert's um, time at FC Tokyo. So yeah, that, those are the fullbacks. I'm, I don't think we're really going to change anything. I wouldn't have signed Shirai. I think he's just really fast and goes up and down the pitch and that's it. Like I talked to him, I talked about him a lot um, a lot in my newsletter whenever I mentioned Kyoto, but that's more because, you know, that's that speaks more to Kyoto's like ability and mm. like or lack thereof that like I have to mention Shirai being like a big kind of um, component in their in their attack. <laughs> now we're going to go into midfield. I think this is the part where um, Ben Lai and like a lot of other FC Tokyo Kai guys are going to agree upon is, you know, the big number 10, Keigo, Keigo Higashi. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, he keeps getting second chances and third chances and fourth chances. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> Whenever you think he's out of the lineup, something bad happens. Like, you know, last year was Takia Aoki getting an injury and then all of a sudden Higashi's our number six. And like, I, I, I just don't understand it. Like he, he clearly has like some naughty pictures of some higher up in Tokyo because he just keeps he just keeps coming back into the team and like yeah it's really frustrating seeing him play yeah like he clearly isn't fit to play especially in a double pivot alongside Matsuki and um, yeah like going forward it really should be us trying to sign Ricky Harakawa permanently because I think he's only on loan. And so, yeah, Harakawa Koizumi, who I think is really good, but has been misused at right back because of injuries, again, unfortunately. Um, and then Matsuki. But most likely Matsuki is going to leave in the next six months to a year. So, again, we're going to have to find another person, which is, you know, great. We keep having to, you know, replace and replace and replace people. It's really frustrating because, um, you know, after... Shuto Abe left, and that's why that's that's another reason why Keiko Higashi, you know, came back in the team, right? Because you know Shuto Abe left, and then like, oh well, we're down another midfield, we're down another center midfielder, and Hotaka Nakamura got injured, so Koizumi has to shift over to right back, and now we have to big gap to fill in the middle. And oh, hey, Keiko Higashi is available, so I guess we'll throw him in and, and see him, and we can all suffer together. Um, and like you know, Harakawa is great, um, but he's he's also He's also 30, so again, you know, after a while, we're gonna have to have new blood again. So it'll be interesting to see whether like someone young like Tsubasa Terayama, who was on the bench for the Skamba game, but he didn't come on. Then Yuki Kajira, who's been on loan at Zwagen Kanazawa. Um, I've actually been watching a couple of Zwagen Kanazawa games over the past uh, season just to you know watch uh, Kajira play. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if you know. If either one of them can really step up, um, yeah, because we really need some young blood in midfield, especially with Matsuki very, very likely to move uh, move along sooner rather than later. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, like I think the wingers are fine. Like Nakagawa is really good; he just keeps getting injured. Adalton, he probably doesn't really fit the kind of play style that we want, but he's still, you know, really useful. And like he's always a nice weapon to have, whether on the bench or just rotating in. So like you know, I I yeah. Um, and then Kota Tower Tsumida, as we've discussed, yeah, fantastic 
uh, Ryoma Watanabe can sometimes play out wide as well. So, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, oh, yeah, so, like, you know, Jaja Silva can play anywhere up front or out wide. So, I mean, yeah, he's okay. He's not amazing or anything, but, you know, a nice squad member to have, I guess. And he's, you know, and he's 24. Uh, he's a lot younger than the usual kind of Brazilian imports that you see in a lot of J-League teams. So that's an, one positive thing, I, I guess. I mean, in terms of up top, yeah, we've already talked about this, you know, like finding a long-term Diego replacement. Um, you know, Perotti has been awful. I think Ben will agree. He mm. hasn't done anything. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just looks really lumbering and like not in like a strong kind of tough kind of way, but just just really slow and not really doing anything useful. Uh, Keita Yamashita was, um, you know, he played pretty decently for Tosu, but Aber didn't see him as an option at all. Like he barely played and then he got injured. And then, you know, he went on loan to Shonan and then he got injured again. So, yeah, I don't, it's unfortunate, but yeah, like, so the kind of long-term search for Diego continues. Um, it would be nice to see Naoki Kumata get a lot more games. I think he's at the Asian Games right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's going to miss another game or two. But, like, once once he comes back, it would be nice to see him get more minutes. In terms of, like, who could come in, like, maybe Fuji Honda. Like, he's been injured. Oh, there we go. <laughs> he's been injured for most of this season, but I really liked him at the beginning of the season and the, in, the, in the previous seasons, right? Like, he would be a nice alternative to Ryoma Watanabe in, the, in that number 10 position. And he can also, you know, play all across that, uh, at the, all across the attacking midfield as well. So that would be, be nice. And, you know, he's also still quite young, 23, 24-ish, I think. Yeah, so again, you know, refreshing the squad, I think it's really going to be important. Well, I, I, think the, I think the problem, isn't it, Rio, is it just we, we don't know what sort of control... Uh, the manager, in this case, Klamovsky, is going to have over players that come in or, or go out. And, yeah, I mean, Higashi is just part of the furniture. Uh, Morishige is as well. I mean, your point's taken. He's still, obviously, a very good, uh, you know, player in general, but he's going to have to be um, moved on, um, you know, soon. It could be as soon as this offseason if uh, if Klamovsky wants him out the door. But, yeah, I mean, they're, they're just entrenched in the club and it's just uh it's a matter of if Komovsky I think can change the culture uh, at Tokyo and that does involve yeah making some uh, being able to make big decisions on some uh, some names that have been around for so long and uh, for me that's going to be one of the key things to watch in the off season whether yeah he will actually um have carte blanche to make um, make decisions like those uh, difficult ones on some veteran players and whether he will actually be able to bring in players that he's actually targeted himself that he thinks can fit the system so yeah i think that's definitely an area to watch uh, in the uh, in in the off season um okay so uh we'll uh, we'll leave it there with the real for uh, for part one of this episode Uh, real thanks so much for uh yeah sharing your thoughts on the uh obviously the top of the table clash but yeah also the uh, the tokyo gamba game as well and uh, yeah just before we uh, let you go please do give a plug for uh, for shogun soccer and um yeah anything else you want to plug how can the uh, the listeners follow what you're uh, what are you up to these days yeah sure so um um as ben said and uh, johnny has mentioned throughout this podcast episode um i 
run a newsletter called uh, Shogun Soccer. Uh, ShogunSoccer.com is where you will find my newsletter. Um, it's basically, um, you know, me talking about J- the J League and sometimes Jap- Japan national team. Um, I go really in depth in terms of, like the tactics stuff, um, and I also use a lot of data as well. Um, you know, basically, like what you heard in this podcast episode is kind of what you get. Um, but yeah, it's it's difficult kind of uh, talking about like really in depth tactical stuff on a podcast uh, because you know it's it's like a lot of the concepts or like a lot of the details I talk about like players' movements and all that. It's really difficult to uh, kind of describe in words. So I know for like my newsletter, I I draw out a lot of these diagrams, and you know because you know a picture tells a thousand words, right? So you know uh, for my newsletter talking about um, the uh, the games we discussed in this podcast, I'll hopefully have a lot of diagrams to kind of help listeners kind of visualize what I really meant when I was kind of rambling uh, earlier on in the episode. So hopefully that'll be useful because, yeah, yeah, it's um, it's always uh, difficult to come onto this podcast because it's such um, it's a it's a very different way to kind of describe the game. But, yeah, it's it's a, it's a nice challenge and hopefully I'll keep getting better if, um, you know, if you guys keep letting me back on and ramble. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah, Shogun Soccer. Um, and uh, thanks again for having me on. Yeah, an absolute pleasure, Rio. Thanks very much. And uh, well, yeah, next time uh, Kobe and F Marinos play, we'll uh, we'll definitely have you on. Okay, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we look forward to catching up with you again in the future. And once again, listeners, yeah, do check out Shogun Soccer. Thanks again to Rio. After a quick hit of music, Johnny and I will round up the rest of the J1 Match Day 29 results. Welcome back to part two, and uh, we'll shift our attention from, uh, well, the top of the table and uh, mid-table in terms of FC Tokyo and Gumbara Osaka down to the relegation dogfight, Johnny, where uh, last week it was obviously a, a rough rough sledding for our three combatants, all losing by two clear goals. Uh, well, uh, things definitely turned for the better for all three of them in match day 29. And, well, Yokama FC weren't to know it at the time, but their hugely creditable point away at Urawa on a Friday night turned out to be the worst result of the weekend for the three dogfighters. A terrific display by the Sky Blues up at the Saitama Stadium. But, uh, yes, their situation has seen them end the, the, the match day, bottom of the table. Yeah, and it's not a time you really want to be bottom of the table, is it? Because there's no more league games until the 21st of October. There's, it's all cup games, so Yokohama FC have a, a long, long time to contemplate their fate. And also, you know, they've the been feeling a bit sorry for themselves at the you know, the, the goal they conceded against Nagoya away, where you know Junker was deemed not to be interfering with play. And I strongly agree with Sam that he, he clearly was interfering with play and they were given a penalty against. Urawa, as we talked about with Ralph, you know, that they were irate that the last home game against Kyoto, they weren't given a penalty. There were several decisions went against them and you know, in, in this game that they, they got the penalty, but I don't know if the, the referees were looking at the VAR from the, the Kyoto game because uh, I think I saw John Steele on Twitter and I don't think the Yokohama FC fans agreed with this decision, but yeah, a hugely creditable display by, by Yokohama FC. Ralph warned us, I think, when he was on the pod, don't, don't write off these teams and that's the second draw they've got against uh, Urawa. And 
you know, they've been hurt by the penalty decision, but they've been feeling proud at the end of the game. But as you say, unfortunately, they're, they're now down in, in last place and with only five games to go. Not not somewhere you'd like to be. No, that is absolutely correct. Uh, Yokohama FC uh, took the uh, the lead in the 15th minute at Saitama Stadium through uh, Marcelo Rian. He took a uh, return pass from Caprini. Uh, Alex Schultz got across to get a challenge in, but the ball sat up perfectly for Rian to lash in a superb left-footed volley from the edge of the box. But, uh, well, yeah, swings and roundabouts in terms of uh, controversial refereeing decisions, uh, Johnny. And, uh, yeah, Urawa had the uh, the rub of the green in the 72nd minute after a Takahiro second, a through ball for Shinzo Kuroki. Kuroki and Boniface Induka each had a handful of the other's shirt, but uh, Kuroki went to ground, uh, falling backwards, and uh, the penalty was given. Uh, Schultz sent the ball high into the net from the spot over Kengo Nagai's attempt to save, and it was uh, 1-1. So, um, yes, as I said, swings and roundabouts. Reds have felt hard done to uh, uh, in terms of officiating several times this season. But, uh, yeah, the boot was on the other foot, and it was uh, your Karma FC who felt hard done to. What was uh, your de- uh, what was your decision? What was your uh, opinion of the uh, the referee's decision to award the spot kick? Um, I, I think it's one of these, like, because he, he sees Boniface does briefly grab Karaki's shirt, but Karaki's got more of, of Boniface's shirt, and, you know, Karaki's a vastly, vastly experienced player, isn't he? Whereas Boniface, this is his first season in J1 level, it it looks like maybe, like we talked about in the Marinos-Kobe game, how they kind of casually blocked off Watanabe trying to defend. I, I think it was more, you know, the, the street smarts of, of Karaki sort of buys this, this penalty, and I think because Boniface does kind of grip grab his shirt, that when you check it in VAR, you can't really say it's not a penalty. So, yeah, I think the ref has mostly got it wrong, but it's not 100% wrong, so they can't overturn it. So, I mean, Yokohama FC, they, they have to use this as, as fuel for their, their fire because the next three games leading up to this big game we've been, we've been promoting against Shonan in round 33. They've got UFC Tokyo, they've got Sapporo, they've got Sagan Tosu. They've got to say to themselves, you know, if we can go to Urawa and get get a point, you know, the, all those teams, Tokyo, Sapporo, Tosa, are mid-table, don't have a whole lot to play for. They've mm. got to be targeting points from, from all those games. These are the ones you've got to be, be drawing or, or, or winning. So they've got a couple of weeks to think about it. They've got to gear themselves up. I think, you know, Reds are still technically in the title race, but basically they're in the run for, for second. Yokohama FC, you know, they're not done by, by any stretch of the imagination, as they showed with the, the, the fight and spirit they, they displayed on, on Friday night at Saitama Stadium. Now, that's right. So, uh, obviously, yeah, that uh, was a, a hugely impressive performance from Yokohama FC and a well-deserved point, although they almost left with nothing. With the uh, the last kick of the game at the end of the six minutes of stoppage time, uh, after some pinball wizard, the ball fell perfectly for Kaito Yasui, who uh, half-volleyed, well, I say on target, but uh, it's one of those where the ball arcs away from goal at just the wrong moment for Reds. It, uh, it tailed away and it went past Nagai's left-hand post, uh, agonisingly close to a, a winner for Reds, which would have been, uh, yeah, very rough justice for Yokohama FC. But, um, yeah, it almost kept Reds uh, properly involved in the title race. But as it is now, yes, they're eight points behind Kobe, although they did stay in third spot in the table. Uh, so that result, yeah, for Yokohama FC, it, uh, it took them two points clear 
of uh, Shonan and it got them a, a point closer to Racehold before both of those teams played on Saturday. It was a Sam Robson special, the early kickoff time up at the Sapporo Dome when the Sapporo hosted Kashiwa and uh, Raisol took the lead in the 21st minute when Mateus Savio cut out a crossfield pass and sent Mal Hosoya through the centre. Hosoya opened up his body and sent a fine first-time shot off uh, Shuntakagi's fingertips and in off his left-hand post. And uh, seven minutes before half-time, Hosoya grabbed his second after Diego crossed from the left. Hosoya controlling and then firing home via a deflection. Six minutes into the second half, Superchok volleyed in a loose ball after Kenta Matsumoto had uh, come out to clean out uh, Yuya Asano. And, um, yeah, Superchok was able to volley in his seventh of the season. And, um, well, yeah, it didn't end up being uh, squeaky bum time at the Sapporo Dome for Raisol, uh, Johnny, even though there were some chances for the host to, to equalise a, uh, a precious three points to uh, for, for Raisol to edge them uh, ever closer to safety. Well, it, it grabbed them uh, some more breathing room ahead of Yokohama FC at least. Yeah, I think I think they're within touching distance of safety, aren't they, with the, the recent form they've been in? And you know, two one doesn't really do them justice. I think it could be about five two or, or six two. And if they did kept up the counter attack and they showed in the first half and in the second half, they would have run away with this. I, I think for Sapporo, a few a few chickens were coming home to roost because they always tend to get caught out in counter attacks and pick up a lot of yellow cards along the way with like, shirt pulls and trips. So I think. Miyazawa, Arano and Okamura, they were all suspended and Baba was away with the Asian Games. So that left a big hole down the middle of the park, as you saw, exploited by, by Hosoya for that first goal. And then Yamada has a very good run in the counter for, for the second goal. And then I think it wasn't really shown in the highlights. Right at the start of the second half, Matthias Savio, I think that the name Mercurio was designed for him because he's either brilliant or, or terrible. But he missed a golden opportunity and blazed the ball over and that. That would have ensured absolutely no squeaky bum time up at the Sapporo Dome. But you know, as it was, Sapporo had a, a lot of shots. I think, again, if anyone saw the highlights, it looked like lots of Sapporo shots. But they were all from outside the, the box and you know, uh, lots of players in the way of the goal. And the, the, one of the few times they actually went straight at the Kashiwa goal, they, they, they got the reward with the Super Chocks goal. But, yes, very disappointing stuff overall from, from Sapporo. That's, they've only got two wins in the last 15 games. You know, the... They're only a couple of points. I think they're only above um, uh, Kyoto Senga in 15th in goal difference and joint worst defence in the league with Shonan and, and Gamba. It's not, not great for Petrovic's side, but yeah, Kashiwa sits six points above 18th with um, with five games to go. Yeah, almost, almost there, Kashiwa fans, almost. Yeah, certainly looking that way. And obviously those two results, Yokohama FC is on Friday night and then uh, Kashiwa's at, on the Saturday lunchtime, heaped all the pressure onto Shonan as they uh, travelled away to Cerezo Osaka for a Saturday night kickoff. Uh, Cerezo welcomed back at Kim Jin Hyun between the sticks for his first league start in almost four months. And after some good early chances for Cerezo, Kim was beaten in the 24th minute, only for the post to come to the home side's rescue. Hiroyuki Abe's low curler with just a little too much curl on it. Uh, visiting keeper Daiki Tomi was kept busy up the other end, but it was a Shonan sub, Akito Suzuki, who made the vital breakthrough with just over 10 minutes left, rising unmarked 
to power home a header from a Daiki Sugioka corner to give Belmare a precious lead. And three minutes from time, Shaunan secured the three points that took them off the foot of the table when Captain Kazuki Oiwa's deft chip was volleyed home on the turn by Yuki Ohashi. So... This was simply massive for Shaunan, Johnny. Of course, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we had Cerezo in the thick of the title hunt with, uh, what, seven or eight games to play. Since then, uh, they'd lost two on the spin heading into this game, and in front of their home supporters, they would have been desperate to turn things around. But uh, Shaunan have uh, rocked up, and uh, they've done an absolutely terrific job to, uh, as I say, haul themselves off the foot of the table and they just kept on going right until the end there with these two vital late goals. And, well, it could be the difference between uh, relegation and staying in J1 for them. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like you say, Sarazo just had two disappointing de- defeats away from home. So you think coming back in front of their home fans are going to want to you know, like show they've got the bit between their teeth. But in reality, at times in the first half, they looked a bit like they were feeling sorry for themselves. Uh, you mentioned Kim Jin-hyun was back. They also had uh, Okuno was back. And you know, I really like him. And I, I know he's played as a, a forward before and even just before he got injured. But at his age and Kagawa's age, I feel like it's, it should be one or the other. And the fact that Serizo, you know, challenging for the top three and they're playing bottom of the league at home, and they went for him ahead of Ruedjo. I thought that set a bit of a negative tone from the start. And I think the first half you saw two teams that don't really like to play in the front foot too much. But uh, Shonan's need was greater. So they, they pressed ahead more. Whereas Serizor are naturally a bit of a, a better side. So that the quality of their passing was maybe a bit better. Even if it went a bit side to side. And I think you might have saw that Leo Ciara had an, an epic running shot in the, the first half. But that kind of said a bit about Serizo. It kind of relied on individual brilliance rather than any like particular game plan to, to break Shonan down. And now I saw the first half of this game live before switching over to the, the San Frecce game and I felt at halftime Shonan must have been able to sense blood in the water. Like You wouldn't have thought this is a game we could win necessarily looking at the fixtures, but I think the halftime team talk from, from Yamaguchi must have really focused on that. And no, it was, it was quite interesting. I was, uh, I knew it was, I was on, so I was, I was kind of half hoping that someone with a Gamba connection would score, and it was former Gamba junior youth um, forward Suzuki, uh, an Osaka boy who did it, and I, I've got quite high hopes for him. He's quite highly rated, and this was a, it's a wonderful header because he's, he's quite close to Kim Jin Hyun, and Kim gets a hand on it, but he can't do anything about it, and then brilliant volley from Ohashi, who's really, really stepped up to replace uh, Machino. So, yeah, the, the, I think. Um, the, the Gamba correspondent, Mr. Kanagawa, he was he was travelling along to, to watch the, the game on Sunday. Gamba FC Tokyo News in the same bullet train as, as the, the Shogunan players. And he was talking to Abe and Yamaguchi and he said they were in really, really good spirits. So I think they, they, enjoyed, their, they enjoyed their Saturday night in Osaka. And then they've got a few weeks before the next game. I think they've got a slightly harder run in than, than Yokohama FC. But the next game is away to, to Kyoto Sanga, coached by, their, of course, their former long-standing coach, uh, Cho Kijay. So that'll be an interesting one, and it'll definitely be one that they'll, they'll fancy winning and return to, to Kansai, leaving with another three points. So, yeah, I think we can almost say we've got, we've got two teams down, down the bottom, but which of those two goes down is, is anyone's guess. I, I know they're both in, in your neck of the woods, Ben. Do you have any, any comments on that? Well, it's a tough one, as you know, Johnny. I wouldn't want to offend anybody because, yes, uh, part of the JTalk family, obviously, uh, very heavily invested in the Yokohama FC 
these days. And Sean Nunn is, as I've said numerous times, uh, the closest uh, J1 team to my uh, my current residence. So, uh, yes, uh, Sean Nunn away is the only FC Tokyo game I'm basically allowed out for these days. So I have uh, strong reasons to uh, to hope they could both hang on. But, yeah, it's, it's looking very, very unlikely at uh, as we sit that, uh, yeah, um, they'll both be able to survive this season with uh, Racel making a late uh, surge that I guess yeah we all expected. Um, so yeah, I'm going to have to sit on the fence and say I'll just let the chips fall, <laughs> let the chips fall where they may. And um, well, again, uh, yeah, in in some ways I hope it's decided in that match day 33 game where when the two of them square off because yeah I'd, I'd hate for it to be on the line when uh, when Tokyo visit. Sean on the final day. I mean, for drama's sake, obviously um, neutrals want it to to go as far as it can. But yeah, for my uh, my personal uh, mental stress levels, I think yeah, I'd prefer if it was settled in the, the clash between the pair of them in in match day 33. So we'll uh, we'll wait and see. But yeah, there are um, pros and cons to yeah the fixtures they've got remaining. And you're right, a lot of them are against. Uh, teams with little to play for, and you hope that will work in the the, um, the strugglers' favour. Um, but of course, yeah, at this time of the season, the uh, the pressure is ramped up, and uh, yeah, that can do a lot to to players, can't it? So uh, yeah, the 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 dogfighters all had a um, yes a prosperous weekend. But as we said at the end of the uh, the match day, Yokohama FC sit uh, on the foot of the table on 23 points, one below uh, Shonan Belmari now, and also nine goals of goal difference behind Shonan, with that race hole up on 29 points and a better goal difference than the two teams below them as well. So uh, three games to go, and they were chock full of goals, Johnny. You mentioned you switched off uh, Cerezo Shonan to, to watch Hiroshima Nagoya. There was, uh, yeah, three goals to the host San Frecce there, but they had to come from behind to beat Nagoya after uh, Kasper Juncker gave uh, the visitors the lead 12 minutes into the second half with a, a sublime chip uh, over an advancing Keisuke uh, Osako. Uh, Mutsuki, Sato, Mutsuki Kato sorry, volleyed in with uh, just under 20 minutes to play to equalise, and then uh, two Hiroshima subs gave them the lead, and then a cushion in the last 10 minutes. Douglas Vieira scoring from the spot after he was pulled to the floor. And then uh, Spider-Man, uh, sorry, Ezekiel, uh, headed or maybe shouldered a uh, deflected Kato shot into the net. Yes, pulling out a Spider-Man mask and uh, striking a pose, uh, which was, uh, well, got him booked, but uh, yeah, I'm all in favour of, uh, of malarkey like that. I don't know about yourself, Johnny, but uh, yeah, it looked like uh, an entertaining game as uh, Hiroshima games tend to be these days. Uh, Nagoya, did they play their part as well? Not not really. I think, you know, the, the first half, uh, I think Juncker hit the outside of the post with a mishit cross, but then it was largely all Hiroshima. They hit the post, they hit the bar, hit the ball in the net twice. I think the first one, Marcos Jr., was, was clearly offside. The second one, I think there's a brilliant volley from, from Nakano, but Pieros is given uh, offside. I'm not convinced he was, and I don't think the, the Hiroshima bench agreed with that because there was a foul just after that, and then they were all up in arms and Skiba got booked for shouting at the ref, and I, I don't think it was about that challenge. I think they were having a go about you know, the, the offside decision. It seemed like Pieros didn't play the ball, and then it was headed up, and then he contested the second ball, and he was ju- judged to be a, interfering with play, but it didn't really quite sit well with me, but 
you know, Nagoya got that goal and they, they missed a big chance uh, four minutes later. I think, yeah, Nagai, to, no surprise to you or, or you, went round Osako and he tried to lay it off to Juncker with the goal at his mercy and it was intercepted and the chance was gone. And then once Hiroshima got that goal, I think Koshimichi was only on about 30 seconds. He went down the, the right and crossed in. After that, there was only one winner. I don't know what Kawazuo was thinking about, giving away the most obvious penalty all season. And then, yeah, the third goal again, it's all the subs involved, Koshimichi, Douglas Vieira, Ezekiel. So Skiba can definitely take take credit from that. Nagoya, I forget how the Nagoya 10-game meter, it's, it's down to nine points from the last 10. Um, mm. Kenta Hasegawa, he, he changed the midfield system. He, he went for a, you know, like a, a Inagaki sitting with, with two players playing ahead of him. So you can have a, a 3-5-2 going on. Changed that all up at halftime, went back to where it started. Seems like he doesn't really have the answer to what's going on. He'll have to hope that the League Cup game is coming up. That's a, a change in scenery for, for them because they've only registered 11 shots in the last two games. But you know Hiroshima, that's them. They're fifth. They're only three points off Urawa, reaching last season's uh, th- third place. That really has to be their, their target. But yeah, good times for them. The, the new stadium looks almost ready, looking beautiful. Nagoya, yeah, big questions about, about what the future holds for them. Yes, most definitely. So, uh, yeah, Hiroshima joined Nagoya on uh, 47 points uh, with this uh, with this victory. We mentioned on last week's episode that, yeah, Fukuoka could rise as high as fifth in the table if they were to win against Kashima. Of course, we spoke uh, about Kashima with Ryo at the end of part one. We uh, we should also have mentioned uh, there that uh, Fukuoka and Kashima drew nil-nil at the Bestenki Stadium, but there wasn't an awful lot to speak about from that game. So, um, yeah. Yeah, we'll give both sides there a due for a point earned. But yes, there wasn't an awful lot to take from the game. So that's why we didn't go into it in any sort of detail at all uh, with Real or indeed here. So, uh, yes, that leaves us with the two games to wrap up the match day. And they were chock full of goals as well, Johnny. On Friday night, Kawasaki hosted Niigata. And this was a seesawing affair that saw uh, Frontale First take the lead in the 23rd minute through Jiao Schmidt, although a definite hint of offside. The goal was allowed to stand, though. Uh, Schmidt tapping in after Ryosuke Kojima had parried a long-range effort from Daya Tono. On the half hour, Koji Suzuki equalised for Alberex in uh, similar circumstances after a 35-yard howitzer from Shunsuke Mito came back off uh, Junsung Ryong's left-hand post. Uh, just before the hour, Naoto Arai's crisp first-time strike back across Jung gave the visitors the lead, only for Shin Yamada to level from the penalty spot 15 minutes from time after he was upended in the box by Taiki Watanabe. But in the 80th minute, Niigata went back in front after Shusuke Ota drove in from the left and arrowed a drive across Jung and into his bottom left corner for his first league goal in six months. So, uh, yes, Ota, great to see him back and flying. And, uh, yeah, Niigata have done the double over Frontale uh, this year, Johnny. Um, a definite feather in their cap as uh, they sit 11th in the table with uh, five games left to go. This did look like an entertaining match. It's, it's two teams actually with quite a similar playing style, so it's interesting that it produced so, so many goals. Because I mean, who would have said at the start of the season that that Niigata would go to Kawasaki and score three goals and have more than 20 shots? Yeah, I, I th- uh, thoroughly agree with you that the first goal should have been given offside. Kawasaki Gomez goes to header Tono's shot. It's right in front of Kojima, who then spills the ball to Schmidt. It's, 
a very poor decision in my, my book. I think it, it should have been ruled out. And then my, my new my new best friend, uh, Shunsuke Mito, he, he again continued to, to light up the league. I'm, I know I, I mentioned he was linked with Gamba in the summer. I'm, I'm thinking Europe is more where he's going to end up very shortly. Because not only does he set up the uh, Suzuki's goal with the, the shot off the post, but the, the second one, I think the Arai's goal comes from a corner that's only partially cleared. And that was again from a, a stinging shot by him that forced Jung to, to turn it wide. So... I don't know if, if Niigata want to wrap him up in cotton wool for the for the rest of the season because they're they're well clear of of relegation and they can just enjoy the the rest of the season and yeah Ota he had a really bright start and it's great to see him back because I think it was him and, and Ito their their kind of combination playing their long range shots really helped Niigata get off to a good start to the season Kawasaki you know they've, they've had a good start in the ACL but the, the league is just a, a bit of a disaster they're still clinging on to to ninth but they're only six points above fifteenth which you know, a couple of years ago, it'd be absolutely unthinkable. So, I know Neil Debnam was on Twitter. He wasn't wasn't happy about how things were going, but you know, they do have a, a an ACL game coming up soon. So, so hopefully they can take their their fans' minds off that. But yeah, Niigata, another team who'd uh, th- thoroughly enjoyed their their weekend after a brilliant victory. So, all, all credit to them. Yes, most definitely. All right then. So the the last game of the match they also ended three two, but this time to the hosts, and it was a Sagan Tosu uh, somehow getting across the line against the Kyoto, and, um, well, yeah, one of the more bizarre endings to a game I think we've ever seen in the J-League, Johnny. Um, it was uh, a terrific start for the hosts when their captain, Yuji Ono, went top bins with a, a superb first-time shot from the edge of the area in the ninth minute, but just past the half-hour, Taichi Hara blasted high into the net to level it up for Sanga, and after Ragusung Yun made a remarkable save to keep out an Akito Fukuta volley early in the second half, and Sol Kawahara's deflected long-range effort came back off the post, the visitors went ahead on the hour when Hara crossed from the left and Yuta Toyokawa rose above Kawahara to head home. Uh, in the 61st minute, Kyoto thought they'd made it 3-1 when Temma Matsuda slid in to deflect an attempted defensive clearance into the net, only for the goal to be disallowed for handball after a VAR check detected that the ball had hit Matsuda's arm as he dashed into the box and appeared at first glance to have chested it down. There weren't really any appeals I didn't notice from uh, the Tosu players, uh, but uh, yeah, ultimately the goal was disallowed. And uh, well, yeah, what, uh, what can you tell us about what went down in uh, in stoppage time, Johnny? In the third minute, of, uh, yes, time added on. One of the more bizarre red cards we've ever seen uh, after a coming together on halfway between Tosu's Yoichi Naganuma and the Kyoto defender Hisashi Taiwo Apia. It, uh, well, yeah, it got a bit naughty and it ended with Apia sent off. Yes, yeah, so absolute chaos energy, J-League. He had 92 minutes and five seconds out of, of five additional minutes of, of injury time. It's 2-1 to Kyoto. Apia Tawias, he, he kind of kills the attack. He goes through the back of Naganuma. And Naganuma is genuinely hurt because there's no reason for him to, to time waste. The free kick's not in a dangerous dangerous area. I think Apia Tawias, there doesn't seem to be any malice in what, what he does, but he obviously one of his joints catches maybe the bottom of Naganuma's spine. Because he's obviously in pain, and then he gets up and he goes down again. But and I've, I went back and watched the game, like the the, the full game on on the zone, and it, it's not particularly clear what actually happened. But obviously, it happens in front of the, the Tosu bench, and someone said something to to Apiatawia he didn't like, 
and he responded by by giving the the, the middle finger to the the Tosu bench, which I'll be honest, I did not know that was a red card offence, but apparently it is. I, I assumed he must have done it to the referee or something, in which case I could understand it. But you know, it must be a you know the, the J League has a family friendly image because you know it, I'm not we're not party to what is actually said on the on the field of play, but. I would imagine that the, the verbal equivalent and worse is used far far more frequently than you know we saw that one off middle finger. I'd imagine a lot of players in the field said said worse. Uh, it must be the fact that everyone could could see it. But you know he's been given a, a red card. He's been given a two game ban. He issued apology. He said he, I'm sorry to Sagantosu. I'm sorry to everyone who saw it, as as you tend to see in Japanese football. I'm a bit, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it, to be honest, because we saw <laughs> Yuma Suzuki got a, a yellow card because he was the captain and he wound up the Kyoto fans with a 2-0 gesture. Kim Jin-hyun apparently can do whatever he wants against Gamba fans, despite being the captain and getting warned. And then a middle finger to the Tosu bench, regardless of what they said, is a, is a straight red with Barn. Yeah, I mean, part of me thinks, you know, if you get kids in the stadium, yeah, good, but part of me thinks, you know, that some of the things that players get away with, and then you get a two-game ban and no defender for, for the last five minutes of this game, and it all, all kicks off, so, yeah, I mean, what, what, what do you make of it, Ben? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I don't know whether it's a, a local playing condition that, um, yeah, gestures like those are punishable by uh, the, uh, the referee brandishing a card, but, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, yeah, I don't remember seeing um, anything like that uh, before um, to that th- that extreme anyway. Um, and uh, yeah, very, very puzzling situation. But yeah, what it meant is that, yeah, obviously Kyoto were down uh, a man for the uh, the remainder of uh, stoppage time, which obviously extended uh, much longer than the originally posted five minutes, as Johnny mentioned. And that meant that uh, Tosa could keep piling forward, and they equalised in the 99th minute when uh, Wataru Harada's header from a Sol Kawahara cross crept through uh, Gu's hands. He would have been absolutely gutted to um, yeah, not be able to keep that out. And then two minutes later, it went from bad to worse for Kyoto when Ayumu Yokoyama crossed from the left and a Huang Sok Ho's glancing header went in off Gu's left-hand post to, um, well, send all of the uh, the home fans at the real estate agent in front of the station stadium home happy and uh, Kyoto had uh, well yeah three points turn into dust in uh, yeah the space of uh, six or seven minutes in uh, in second half stoppage time so yeah a crazy finish uh, but um, it uh, it saw Tosu rise a couple of spots in the table and indeed above uh, Kyoto and uh, back up to 12th so uh, yeah, that's it then. A, a bizarre way to end the match day. It was, uh, yeah, chock full of goals at various grounds, but uh, obviously, yeah, such a an important round at either end of the table. And um, yes, Kobe with breathing room at the top of the table and now Yokohama FC back in the cellar with five games to go. But uh, yeah, we're not the best at building drama in the latter stages of a J1 season, are we, Johnny? Because as you've said, it's now um, uh, quite a long time between drinks between uh, this round, match day 29, and the next, match day 30. But there's uh, plenty to take care of in the meantime. We've got uh, Emperor's Cup coming up this uh, this coming weekend the the two semi-finals will be played on Sunday the 8th of October that's Kumamoto technically the home team but they're playing uh, at Kashiwa's 
Hitachidoi Stadium against Kashiwa Racehole and uh, Kawasaki Frontale host Avispa Fukuoka in the other semi-final. Then, uh, yeah, Fukuoka are going to have to dust themselves off because they're in action in the Levain Cup semi-finals that uh, get going on Wednesday the 11th. Fukuoka are at home against Nagoya and uh, Yokohama F. Marinos uh, uh, host Urawa in the other semi-final in the Levain Cup before the reverse fixtures are played on Sunday the 15th. And, of course, as we mentioned at the end of Part 1 with uh, Riol, the national team is also in action. They play Canada in Niigata on the Friday the 13th and then Tunisia in Kobe on Tuesday the 17th. So, uh, yeah, still plenty of football to keep us occupied in the meantime. But, as I said, uh, the any uh, J1 drama we'll have to wait for a couple of weeks but um yeah the emperor's cup you were bang on kumamoto last time for their their cup set over kobe can they do it again away at kashiwa i knew i knew you were gonna ask me this question (laughs) um well i mean part of me thinks you know if they can beat the j1 leaders why why can't they beat kashiwa away and they're in a bit better form than they were when they beat vsl i don't see there is a chance kumamoto can do it my prediction is it will go to extra time because I was trying to work out the, the math because this game kicks off at 10 past 1 and then Kawasaki kicks off at 3.30, which is a bit infuriating because if it goes to extra time and penalties, it means there's just a slight overlap. So I don't know why they couldn't just kick the Kawasaki game back to 4 o'clock and just eliminate that possibility. But mm. yeah, if I was if I was a betting man, I would say hmm, well, Kashiwa would win that. And I, I would say they'll both go to extra time. Two very tight games. And I'll say Kashiwa Kawasaki because Fukuoka will be distracted by the Levan Cup games. And for another out there prediction, I think there'll be more goals in the Emperor's Cup semi-finals than the, the Levan Cup. Marinos Reds seems like there would definitely be a nil-nil in there somewhere. And Fukuoka and Nagoya doesn't really scream goals. Whereas I think <laughs> you, you might get a 3-2 in the Kashiwa Kumamoto. And then, I mean, Kawasaki lost 3-2 at home the last game. So, yeah, you never know what you're going to get. But, yeah, maybe Kashiwa Kawasaki and, and more goals in the Emperor's Cup than the Levan Cup. What do you say, Ben? All right, I like that uh, those couple of predictions there. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to jinx anybody because, as everybody knows, I'm a terrible reverse jinx. But um, all I'll say is, yeah, we've seen Kofu do it last year. So Kumamoto know that anything is possible because they've just literally seen Kofu do it last season. And, you know, they uh, they get to watch Kofu in the ACL uh, again um, this midweek. So um, that's that's there for them if, they, if they're good enough at Hitachi Dai uh, on Sunday, then they can do it. So, um, yeah, obviously all all neutrals will be pulling for the underdog again, and uh, we'll wait and see if, if Kumamoto can make it uh, to the final at the National Stadium on December the 9th. And indeed, if uh, Fukuoka can uh, stay on course for a cup double in the Emperor's Cup on Sunday. All right, then. So, uh, yeah, with uh, different uh, competitions running and different games on different days of the week, we'll have to uh, see what we're going to do in terms of uh, a podcast for next week and when it might be uh, recorded and uh, released. But uh, for now, Johnny, will leave it there. It was obviously terrific to catch up with Rio again and get his thoughts uh, on, uh, yeah, the two games we were able to chat about with him and, indeed, Kashima as well. So, um, yeah, not sure when we'll...
we'll chat again. But, uh, yeah, look forward to, uh, to catching you again soon. And um, hope you enjoy uh, both uh, cup competitions as well as the, uh, the national team games while we're away. Uh, well, yeah, while J1's away anyway. Thanks very much, Ben. It's been a been a, a long one, but a, a good one. And, and like you say, there's there's a long time before the next round of of um, league fixtures, so there's plenty of time for the the listeners to to check out this pod in, in detail and go back over because because Rio gave us a lot of uh, in depth detail, and I'm looking forward to his kind of backup um, like newsletter that can can actually visualise what what he was talking about. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the you know, the Emperor's Cup semi-finals. I'll hopefully be able to watch both of them, and I might even be able to. To fit, uh, there's an open training session at Gamba this this Sunday. I mean, you can high five the players after after it. I don't think I'll be staying for that, but you know, it'll be a, an interesting Sunday of, of soccer. And uh, yeah, I've enjoyed t- talking about all the goals this week. And then yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you when I talk to you. Th- thanks very much. No worries. I think you should stick around and make your peace with the shot to Fukuoka, Johnny. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll leave that with you and leave it, that decision up to you. All right, we'll uh, leave it there. That's it for this week's episode of the J Talk podcast. Johnny and I would like to thank Rio Nakagawara very much for his time in part one of this episode. Again, check out Rio's work at theshogunsoccer.com. And we'd also like to thank our patrons for their ongoing support on Patreon. And listeners, we'd like to thank you for listening wherever you are. We'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now. The J Talk Podcast. Yes, 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 yes.